that this is going to be my last message on the solas of the Reformation. And my plan is to do the doctrines of grace before I go into First and Second Peter, First Peter and Second Peter. Uh, so, because people sometimes are not aware of what the doctrines of grace are, and so they need to be aware of it because they are very important truths. And part of those truths have really been substantiated uh, from the Reformation also, been brought to light again and examined again. So, this morning, if you want to take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, and then Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 16 through 20. Again, this was uh, just in remembrance of the 500th anniversary of uh, the Reformation, um, which really started a firestorm. Uh, a monk or a priest, Martin Luther, wanted just to uh, nail his five, 95 Theses to the, a church in, in Germany, a Catholic church, and just wanted to just show the people that should know that there have been abuses in the church, and he wasn't really, he wasn't planning on leaving the church, he was planning on reforming the church, the Catholic church, that is, and of course that ended up being, uh, he nailed it there, and then what happened is that they uh, took it off the door and ended up printing it and circulating it throughout the whole uh, country of Germany and beyond. And, of course, that became uh, very prevalent in causing this firestorm. And so out of that rose the five solas. And remember, sola just is Latin, means alone. Uh, Sola gratia, saved by grace alone. Sola fide, saved by faith alone. Solus Christa, saved in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, according to the scripture alone, and then of course today, soli de gloria, for the glory of God alone. So today, we, we really will be examining maybe the most misunderstood and ignored of the solas, sola de gloria, saved for the glory of God alone. And the question that comes up at, at this point is, where should our understanding of these solas lead? What is the purpose of fighting for and clarifying saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone? Well, the first, well, first of all, it forces us to present God and his plan of salvation as he's, he's ordained it in Scripture without any additions. And secondly, it establishes God and his word as the standard for divine justice and mercy, not human desires or human thinking. Thirdly, and most importantly, it impresses upon us the real purpose of life and living. You may ask, well, what is that? Well, it is the subject of our last sola, soli, Deo Gloria, save for the glory of God alone. In other words, it answers the age-old question as reflected in several 
church confessions. And the question being this, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What is the point? Well, the question in the Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is question number one. What is the chief end of, of man? Well, it's twofold, actually. The chief end of man is to first glorify God, and secondly, to enjoy Him forever. From the day of salvation till the day you're in His presence, you drop off these old decaying bodies and you go into the presence of God, we are to enjoy God, right? So God, in, in a sense, you know, he's not a killjoy to our life. He's actually what the person who provides enjoyment to our life. So if you notice in the first Peter passage that I mentioned in chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Why? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that is the first thing, the whole purpose of being human being created in the image of God is to come to a place that God brings us that our chief end is to glorify God. But also, secondly, the Ecclesiastes passage is to enjoy him forever because it is God who really gives us enjoyment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, it says, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoiced in his labor. This is a gift of God. Verse 20, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. In other words, in that passage of Scripture, we see as, as Solomon is trying to uh, examine life and experiment with all areas of life without God, he's forced to bring God into the picture, to have any meaning of why we're here. And God does give meaning to life. And so it's v this very thing that God produces gladness in our inner man, in our heart. And so... That should be the purpose that we all have in this life, every day of our life, is to glorify God and enjoy Him. You and I have read these passages over and over again, and we still find it difficult to define what it means to glorify God, what it means to bring glory to His name. Further, we find it even more difficult to know what it means to live for the glory of God. Now, if, according to the confessions and these scriptures, God has made us for his glory, then we ought to know some things about living for his glory. So, this is the fact. That's the chief purpose of man. 
it was Psalm 73, Asaph was perplexed and baffled by seeing the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering until he went, it says in Scripture, into the sanctuary of God. There he saw things in its true light. The outcome was his confession about God, that he was the all-important, all-sufficient portion of his soul. And this is what it says in Psalm 73, verse 25 to 28. It says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So I believe that Asaph here started grasping the very essence of what it means to glorify God and and to enjoy him. And that's the obligation of every single person who has called themselves a true believer in Jesus Christ is to display God's significance by being content with all God is for us each and every day in every providence that he sends our way. Now, this can be better really understood when you get a sense of the meaning of the New Testament and the Old Testament term for glory. Well, let's, let's look at some passages. In Romans chapter 11, verse number 36, and then also 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 17 through 22. Those are the two passages that I want to mention. And I'll mention many passages this morning. I don't want you to turn to all of them, but I do want you to listen to what they say and what they communicate. Now, in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says this, Paul, the Apostle Paul writing, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then he says this, to him be glory forever. Now, and then he says, amen, so uh, let it be. The word term glory here in this passage means a brightness, a splendor, a radiance, a majesty that describes who God is. There's an old Hebrew word that also is spoken of in Scripture, meaning uh, that means glory, and it's the word kabod. Kabod means weightiness or Whatever you're talking about has weight to that. It's like when we say, man, that's heavy. When you get heavy information, it, it, like you, it takes a while for you to process it. But it also means importance, and it means significance. If you remember in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, there is a section there in the Word of God that talks about a battle that was going on 
And, of course, Eli was the priest at the time. He had two sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. And you notice what it says here when it comes to the glory of God. All right, notice in verse number 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 4. Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. Verse 19, now... His daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news of the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And verse 20, and about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said, don't be afraid, for you have given birth to a son, But she did not answer or pay attention, and she called the boy Ichabod, kabod. All right, there's that Greek word. And what does that say? Well, it tells us there, saying the glory has departed from Israel. And why? Because the ark of God was taken. And remember, the ark was a representation of the present the continual presence of God amongst the people of God. Now here, the glory of God is departed from Israel, and she, of course, calls the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and husband, of course, were dead, and and she said the glory has departed from Israel, the ark of of God was taken. So that is very heavy to know that God was in the presence of his people and now his presence along with his glory is gone. See, the heaviness of God was no longer significant to the people. So when we say we are to glorify God, it means we are to treat him with weight. We are to treat him with importance as more significant than anything or anyone else. That's what it means. And that is telling, that is a a thing we as human beings created in his image really have not done as much as we should. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, this verse that we all know, all have sinned and come what? Fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we don't think God very significant if we think of God at all. We have a very low view of him, or we have our own opinion about what he should be like. According to theologian John Piper, he said this, this means that none of us has trusted and treasured God the way we should. We have not been satisfied with his greatness and walked in his ways. Now, 
That brings me to a, another section, and that's what's the difference between God's glory and our glory? Because we do have glory. Well, again, if you take your Bible and you turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 8, you're going to get a sense there of this is the transfiguration that. First of all, God's glory is inherent, or some have said that it's intrinsic, in the intrinsic glory of God. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned? And then it tells us in Isaiah, and my glory, I will not give to another. In other words, God cannot share his glory, his inherent glory with us. And the reason why is because he is God. Because God's glory is his own and proceeds from within the very nature of his majestic deity. He cannot and he will not share his weightiness, and his significance with any other creature, angel or human. He cannot do it. Or it would make that person God. Now, if you notice what it says in Matthew 17, verse 1 through 8, we see here this is a good example of God's inherent glory as seen on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospel of Matthew. In verse number 1, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And then notice down to verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now, if you notice, any time the glory of God is really present People are not talking or carrying on. They're usually fall on their face, terrified by the presence of God. Of course, they that day understood and got a short glimpse of the inherent glory of Christ that did not come from around him, but came from within him, all right? connected directly to the Old Testament word for glory, that that was always connected to the presence of God. In other words, the father was telling his disciples, by that incident, this is my son who is also God, who is God. We are one together, right? Revealing to them the weight and significance of who Jesus really was. And the disciples had to learn that. We have to learn that. See, the deity of Jesus Christ burst forth from within by showing forth his glory. Theologians 
of course, referred to this incident in John chapter 1, verse 14, a verse that we most of us know where the word became flesh, remember, and dwelt among us. And what? We saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The only unique one of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when they say that verse, it was the disciples who were there on the Mount of Transfiguration who are relating to us, we saw his glory. We saw what happened in his presence and how that inherent glory came up out of him. Well, there's also the glory that God gives us, but the glory that we have is reflected glory. It is not inherent glory. We have no glory inside of us. The glory that we experience and have and creation has comes from outside of us. And usually that, of course, is reflected. Now, I don't want to turn here, but I do want to read it because God has assigned glory to creation where it says in a passage of Scripture like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 38, it says, But God gives it a body just as he wished, and each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. And then in verse 40, it says this, There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but... The glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another, and there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars different from star in glory, so also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body, it is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and is raised in power. So in other words, in reading those verses, the glory assigned to each part of creation is not an inherent glory, but a reflected glory that comes from God himself. Remember, and I want to remind you that in Scripture, we're just baked dirt. That's all we are. Yet God desires to display glory in earthen vessels like us. Therefore, we have no glory that comes from inside of us. Whatever measure of glory we receive comes from outside of ourselves. The reason why human beings have a dignity at all is because God has assigned dignity to us. It is not inherent to us. It's given to us and reflected from God to us that we're created in the image of God. But we are not God, and we never will be God. And no human being will and no angel will, according to Scripture. So an example we get from this, and again, I'll just relate to you the story. Remember when Moses went to give, get the Ten Commandments uh, and he actually prayed to God in Exodus, Lord, please show me your glory. He was so, uh, in, uh, actually, he was so, he desired so much to see the glory of God, he prayed to, to, that God would show him his glory. And, uh, but the Lord said to him, listen, 
I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will, will proclaim my name before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he says, I cannot, you cannot see my face, for no man could see my face and live. No, no man in human body can see God's face and live. But someday, we're going to see God in our resurrected bodies, the full glory of God, and be able to live. We, we cannot live and see God's glory in its fullness in these bodies. And that's one reason for the humanity of Jesus. Jesus came into this world, but much of his glory was veiled. All right? But someday we're going to be able to see God in his full glory. And that's going to be a magnific- magnificent day, that's for sure. Well, anyway, Moses was put in the cleft of the rock, and the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's what he said there. And then when Moses came down from the mountain and the people saw him coming down, he did not know, it says in Exodus 34, that his face has shone because he was speaking to God. In fact, he had to put a veil over his face because his face was, was so bright that people couldn't even look on him. And so, see, that was reflected glory that came and was placed upon Moses because he was in the presence of God. And, of course, there are many examples of this in Scripture. When we think of uh, the shepherds uh, in the New Testament, what did it say about the shepherds when uh, they were in the fields watching their flocks by night, that famous Christmas passage that we use? And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and then it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were what? Terribly frightened. And of course, the angel says, don't be afraid. But see, the glory of the Lord immediately arrests people in their tracks. They, they, they can't think of anything else when, when those things take place. And then when Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, to go and kill Christians and on the road to Damascus, the glory of God was seen by him too on that road where it says that when he was on the way to Damascus, suddenly the light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. And that light at 12, around 12 noon was brighter than the sun's light. See, he experienced the glory of God. Did Paul or Saul at that time, argue with the Lord? No. He says, who are you? And, and Jesus says, it's Jesus whom you're persecuting, right? And everything changed on that day. So he was confronted with the glory of God, and he, there was no argument. There was no discussion. It was either conversion, either you're in or you're out, right? And, of course, the Apostle Paul became a great... Uh, Apostle writing most, most of the New Testament for us. Now, some examples of human beings glorifying God 
is David, where he says in the Psalms, oh, God, let your glory be above all the earth. And he says that several times in several of the Psalms. Oh, Lord, let your glory be above all the earth. And then the Virgin Mary, uh, where she says, when the angel came to her, she says, my soul exalts the Lord. Another way of saying that a person experienced the glory of God. And then she says, my spirit and my my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. What? Mary needed a Savior? Yes. Her own son was a Savior. And then the man, uh, sick with palsy, all right? See, all these people, they glorified God when they give back to God his weightiness. When they give back to God his importance, when they give back to God the credit that is only due God and no one else, when the man in Luke, the, who was sick with palsy, he says immediately he got up before him and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. What was he saying? Look what God did for me. No one could have done this. No human being could do this. God gets the glory. And then the woman with an infirmity in Luke chapter 13. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. The leper, again, healed of the leprosy. It says they turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. The man born blind in Luke chapter 18, immediately he regained his sight and began following him glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they were praising God. The centurion at the cross, what did he say? Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. Another way of saying a person is glorifying God when they're praising God. And he says this, certainly this man was innocent. And of course, the apostle Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, which I read already, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, am, amen. So in other words, God's glory is within inherent glory or intrinsic glory. Our glory is from without. It is reflected glory that God gives to us. Now, consequently, we are all called to reflect God's glory. Again, uh, John Piper says it well. He said, God made us to magnify his greatness the way telescopes magnify stars. He created us to put his goodness and truth and beauty and wisdom and justice on display in our life. The greatest display of God's glory comes from the deep delight in all that he is. In other words, a person comes to the place where they begin to get the weightiness, the significance of who God is. And everything changes in a person's life when that happens. In fact, your greatest desire in life is going to be, and maybe the question could be too, how can I glorify you today, Lord? And am I glorifying you? So that means proper glory is to be given to God. So that's called ascribed glory. 
we are to ascribe glory to God. And the reason why we have not been satisfied with his greatness and walked in his ways is because we have looked in other places. We have looked at other people. We have sought out things for our own satisfaction and have treated them as more important than and valuable than God himself. All of us, in some way, are guilty of that. See, putting a substitute in the place of God is called simply idolatry. And you can put anything in the place of God. You don't have to carve an image of wood or stone. Anything in your mind you think wrongly about God is idolatry. Anything that you think can satisfy you apart from God is idolatry. Anything you seek out to try to get some kind of satisfaction in life apart from God is idolatry. See, we are idol-making factories. Somebody said that. I think it was Paul Tripp, Ted Tripp, one of them. Right? That's what we are. It all comes out of us. But remember what Paul said in that great chapter 1 of Romans, for even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. This is what we do. We exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. That's what people do. They exchange who God is in his character with, for something else to give them fullness and satisfaction. And of course, that is something that we should not do. Now, how serious is God about his glory? Well, let's take our Bibles again and turn to Acts chapter 12, verse number 23. Acts chapter 12 and verse number 23. But let's look at verse 20 through 23. It says in Acts 12, verse 20, it says, He was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and did with one accord they came to him, and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Of course, Herod is what's referred to there, person. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Verse 22, the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him. Notice why. Because he did not give God the glory. And then notice what happens. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. I think you would think twice about connecting to those people. Uh, if you knew that uh, if you try to rob God's glory, that there is a significant price to it. And of course, leaders 
Herod was not a believer, but leaders have a responsibility as ministers to do what is right and, and righteous and just. And, of course, Herod thought, of course, a lordship, lord worship, uh, especially those who were kings back then, was prominent back then. So, so he took the glory instead of giving glory to God, and God does not share his glory with anyone. Whoever they are, however powerful they are, however well-known they are, however, well ri- however rich they are, he shares it with no one. So Ichabod means no glory, and that's the worst imaginable thing that could happen to any human being is when God's presence is not there, when God departs from a group of people or an individual. And why is because God is jealous for his glory. As Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So, what does that all mean for us in a, in a, in a practical way? Well, we're supposed to give glory to God. And so, how do we give glory? give glory to God? Are there any practical ways to give glory to God? And of course, the answer to that is yes. In fact, when I started looking at this particular topic, there were over 400 passages of scripture that talk about the glory of God. I couldn't trace them all. It just became so overwhelming and that I couldn't do it. But you get the point so far of what I'm talking about, how important this is. This is the chief end of all our lives. So every day we have to ask ourselves, are we giving glory to God? Of course, we are to give proper glory to God in our own salvation. And what I mean by that is that Jonah says salvation is of the Lord. In other words, we can take no glory for our salvation. I mean, even looking at the solas, I can't take glory for my salvation. I I have not offered anything to save myself, neither have you. All of it comes from God, right? So God has to... be given the glory when it comes to thinking about our salvation. Also, we're to give proper glory to God in our daily walk. Now, how do we give glory to God in our daily walk? Well, here's more than 12 activities of personal worship that glorify God. I want to give you them and possibly read a few passages uh, to you, and then we'll look up one before I close, at least one, maybe two. But The first way is when we rely on his promises. That's when we bring glory to God, when we rely on his promises. Well, who's the example here? Romans chapter 4, verse number 13, and then 20 and 21, it was Abraham. It says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the the righteousness of faith. Then in verse 20 of Romans 4, yet... With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. And why did he give, in in sense, give glory to God? And he says this, he being fully assured. Remember, he's old, impossible to have kids. His wife's old, and God says you're going to be the father of great nations. This is what it says. Before all that, he was fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. See, that's giving glory to God when we believe God's promise. All right, 
we don't see heaven right now. We don't have resurrected bodies right now. But we know. We're, can we say like Abraham, I'm fully assured that what God had promised will he was able to perform, to finish what he starts? Yes, he is. And when we do that, we give glory to God. Secondly, when we praise God with our lips and give thanks to God. Let me just mention 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. When a group of people who are calling on God are nothing but thankful, that means there's an absence of complaining, grumbling, or whatever else, sighing, whatever else you want to put there. We're, we're praising, genuinely praising God because we understand the weight of God and the significance, significance of God, and we are determined to give him glory, then his glory will abound amongst the people, and God will be honored. A third way is when we aim our life at that very purpose. That passage of Scripture we quote so many times in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 31, when... It says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, the famous 18th century American preacher, Jonathan Edwards, and president of Princeton University right here in New Jersey, applied this thinking to his life by resolving. I don't know if anybody ever read the resolutions or of Jonathan Edwards, but it's pretty incredible what he did. And he said this, that I will do whatever I think to be most to the glory of God in his daily life. And then a third or a fourth would be when we are confessing Christ. Philippians 2, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How? To what end? To the glory of God the Father. Number five, when we bear fruit of righteousness. When we bear fruit of righteousness. What does it say in John 15, verse 8? My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then number six, when we suffer for Christ. And I think maybe this is the most difficult to wrap our mind around, but it says in Scripture in 1 Peter 4, 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in, his, in this name, that when we're suffering, when we're going through trials and tribulations, we, of course, not, are not to think it's strange, but we are to actually learn how to glorify God in that and give him the weight and significance that is due his name. And then also when we walk in faithfulness by the use of our spiritual gifts. I already read the passage in 1 Peter 4, 11, that whether speaking or serving, uh, we get our truth from God, we get our strength from God, and it says, so in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, who belongs the glory, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And of course, again, when we are patient in affliction, where 
Paul writes that the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That the glory that is yet to be revealed is nothing compared to the greatest thing that we know of in this world. And then, of course, when we lead lead others by our example to give God glory. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then I can go on that we bring glory to God when we proclaim God's gospel, when we pray, John chapter 14, when we keep the unity in the church, when we worship God in spirit and truth, when we keep his word and proclaim his word, when we live pure lives, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. And someday we do know this, that giving glory to God will be universal. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, Psalm 86. And then Revelation chapter 5, that every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and on the earth and on the sea, all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, and glory and dominion forever and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. So someday the glory of God will be universe, universal in the new heaven and the new earth and new universe. But there's one last one that I left before I end, and that's found in Joshua. I'd like you to turn there. Joshua chapter 7 and verse number 19 Joshua 7, verse number 19. And of course, this one that I left for last is, we bring glory to God when we fully confess our sin. When we fully confess our sin. Look what it says. Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done, and do not hide it from me. Verse 20, so Achan answered Joshua and says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them. 
and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Verse 24, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Verse 25, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day, and all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. In verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Now, why did that happen? He seemed to confess, but he was caught. And the reason why it happened is because God is just. And the consequences of our sin are just when God holds his judgment on them. That's why anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, it will be just for God to send them out of his presence. Because God's justice and righteousness must be met. No one could bypass that. So we bring glory to God when we fully confess our sin. When we say to God exactly what took place. When we don't justify it, we don't make excuses for it, we don't blame other people for it, we confess it fully. That's when God gets the glory. You know, when we confess our sin, 1 John It tells us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You think God doesn't know what you did or what I did? He knows exactly all the motives and intentions behind on why you did it. So there is no reason at all for somebody who understands the importance, significance, the character of God to not come clean. And if you don't, then you don't understand who God is. And you, under, you don't understand God's glory. Because you can't rob God's glory. If you try to rob God's glory, then the significant results are devastating. So then, according to the strong evidence of the word of God, the single highest goal in this life is to bring glory to God. course, which brought people who were writing doctrinal confessions to the same conclusion, like the Westminster Confession and the Baptist Confession of Faith and other confessions, by starting off their statements on that particular foundation, that the chief purpose of man, your chief purpose, my chief purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Philippians tells us this, now to our God and Father 
be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, through this message, you should have a greater understanding of the glory of God. But also, some practical ways that you could examine yourself and accomplish every single day on what it actually means to do it. Now, it's your job to go and do it and to realize what you're doing. Because when you do, and when we do it in this way, we do honor the Lord. We do honor the Lord. Soli Deo Gloria, saved for the glory of God alone. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for your kindness and goodness to us as your people. Lord, as you told Moses that you are a God who's full of compassion and mercy, that you are a God who forgives, but you are a God also that will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Because you can't, because you're just like nobody is just. And I pray, Lord, every day of our life that we would learn and practice how to give you glory. I pray that we, we know we can't do it perfectly, but we, I pray that just the direction of our life would, would be to give you glory. And I pray that you would bless us with the sense of enjoying you every day, getting a sense of the weightiness of who you are, the importance of, you, of who you are, your very character And all that comes out of it in our life, I pray it would be evident with us every moment of every day. So when the moment we wake up to the the moment we put our head on a pillow to go to sleep, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to say in that day, I've given glory to God. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless us in that way and honor us. Show us where we have not given you glory. And I pray that we would quickly change behaviors, habits, where we haven't put you first, or we haven't shown your importance to others or even to our children and our family because of the way we're living our life. And I pray that we would make quick adjustments and always put you first. And I pray this morning all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing uh, 